Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. Elizabeth Cooper is a woman on a mission to help other women. Having always been a working mum myself, I was really excited to sit down with Elizabeth, founder of Womo Network, a SaaS platform transforming the world of the working mother. The business is on a mission to improve the retention of female talent in the workplace, whilst providing a wellbeing solution for mothers and those around her. We talk pretty candidly about what being a working mum has looked like and felt like for each of us personally as well as the professional challenges that is brought along the way. We also discuss our shared passion for being an entrepreneur and explore the why behind our businesses. Our conversation looks at the grit, grind, and perhaps less glamorous moments of being an entrepreneur and why the sense of purpose behind what we do ultimately keeps us going and grounded. Our conversation also looks at the current corporate landscape and the need for businesses to really be looking after their employees in the same way that they look after their customer needs. We discuss the importance of open and vulnerable leadership to change cultures and shift mindsets when it comes to well-being at work and explore how organisations can and should be using the learnings and opportunities from the pandemic to drive real change and create opportunities for a modern and agile workforce. Oh, and if you enjoy Reset the Podcast today, please sign up. It makes an awful lot of difference to us. And one new member each week will get a copy of my book, Let's Reset. Thanks very much. Hello, Elizabeth. How are you this afternoon? Yes, good, thank you. The sun is shining, can't complain. I know, it's so nice, isn't it? And it's not far off Easter for those of us that celebrate Easter, which is, I just think, I, I do quite fancy a few days off. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Four days. Although one of my children is doing an enormous kayak race. So my Easter is going to be on the side of a river. <laughs> oh, nice. Do you know what? My children have both left home now. And that's the sort of thing that although I sort of miss it because it was lovely, I don't really miss it because it's much more fun to say, oh, do you fancy going on holiday? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So we've got lots of things to talk about um, today, but let's start with your your background. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated that you've gone through a relatively corporate-y type of career, and then you've really gone into being an entrepreneur in quite a big way. what was your childhood like? Did, did you did you have that sort of sense of you should be either in a corporate environment or you should be in an entrepreneurial environment at all? Um, it's a good question. Not really, I don't think. I mean, I mean I'm the eldest of three daughters. Okay. Um, there's me, my sister, just under two years after, and then another sister, uh, seven years after me. And my dad, I think, really instilled in us this sort of slightly 
male attitude of you can go and have whatever you want just go get it and we were raised in a house with that sense of possibility from when we were quite young um and my dad worked all the time was employed and then set up his own business so I guess I was raised in a house where both happened actually um and my mum um is a radiographer and worked a bit and then was at home with us for a bit and then back working So I grew up in a house with both parents working and both of them juggling, working and raising us. So maybe that was instilled in me from when I was quite young. Mm, Gosh, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, your role in HR, I'm really fascinated about HR at the moment because I think, and I don't know whether you you agree or, or you think differently, but for me, there are a couple of roles that have really fundamentally changed and evolved during the pandemic. Um, I think one of them is marketing because there's been a real emphasis on digital and customer journeys. Obviously, if you're a supply chain, that's pretty critical and that's really evolved and changed. But I think the, the other area is HR. I think a lot of HR people have gone from being, you know, relatively uh, low down in the organization, maybe not very specific and focused, quite generalist, haven't necessarily sat at the board table. Um, but during the last couple of years, you know, massive scrutiny, real challenges for them. I think the whole area of well-being has become very important, diversity and inclusion. And, and, you know, I've seen some amazing HRs really step up, but I've also seen some really struggle because they just don't have the skill set and also they haven't been helped to just create that kind of new skills that they that they need to know you're absolutely right I think this has been an absolutely pivotal time in the whole HR function in all businesses and the old school I hope I can say this on this podcast but the whole old school tissues and tampons personnel which is really 25 years ago um I love and I've I don't know if I can say that it's a bit cheeky but there was that whole you go to HR because things are a bit hard or you didn't feel well or you were a bit upset and you know HR didn't have a role at the table when I began in my career and it's hugely changed and evolved so much over this time and there are still organizations that are quite old school about HR and I've seen some organizations be left behind through the pandemic where that ability to pivot and shift to be able to respond to the needs of the organization means that they are going to struggle with the engagement and culture of moving that business forward Um, and your point on diversity and well-being I think and I talk about this a lot at the moment there are four huge things on HR's desk at the minute diversity and inclusion well-being in the workplace closing the gender pay gap and retention of female talent because women have been impacted far more than men during the pandemic and there was a report done by the Harvard Business Review that you might have seen that said through their research we've gone back over 10 years in terms of our development of women in the workplace so you then link that into diversity and inclusion but there is a lot going on on HR's desk add into that how are we working? What is hybrid? What does it mean to engage our people and bring them together? Should we have an office anymore? Should we not? Should we? There are so many questions that HR are having to navigate and find their way through at the moment. And that's incredibly challenging if you're trying to hang on to, but it used to be like this. Yes. Well, it isn't anymore. And we need to really focus on what we can learn because we've got no rule book of how this has been done before. It's about feeling our way through and learning and really tapping into the culture of 
the business, whatever your business might be, and find what the right answers are for the culture you want to develop within your organization. There's no rule book. No, I, I completely agree. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting. There are some that hold on to that past, but I think also there's some really progressive HRs, but it's a function that's still, you know, I don't even think now it's undervalued. I think people get it now, but they, they're often limited by the number of people. And now there's not enough talent out there. You know, I think we'll see it, won't we? Because we can see some wonderful youngsters coming through. But you've got that whole middle piece where there's just not enough people. So, you know, you've got that challenge of how do we find uh, more women in the workplace? Um, but there aren't enough there in the first place. Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, the fact that women working have been really impacted by um, the, the pandemic and post-pandemic and what you think the challenges really are for business um, on that and what they can do about it. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Um, so first of all, just to sort of set the scene on the stats, more women dropped out of the workplace in the pandemic, but we have to have the filter on that, that many industries where more women work were impacted. So just keeping that in mind, because I think it's easy just to lump in and say, well, women stepped out. no. More women work in hospitality, more women work in retail, more women work in theatre. So there are some industries that were particularly impacted by women, uh, the women were impacted. Yeah. But then you add to that, that where there are families where both parents work, we know that where there was more demand on homeschooling, running the house, being at home, looking after the children, typically if the pressure got too much, in most cases, the woman stepped out of the workplace or asked to be furloughed or took voluntary redundancy or when there were headcount reductions taking place was more likely to put her hand up for it. Yeah. So that's been another significant impact in how women have been impacted through the pandemic. And we know that women, just by the sheer nature of our DNA, we take on more of the emotional burden and the worry at home. And this is not an anti-men conversation but just that it tends to be deflected to the woman and I want to celebrate all men that are stepping up and truly sharing sharing the parenting burden and we're seeing more and more of that and I use the word burden deliberately because it did feel like a burden for a mm. lot of families through the pandemic um, and yet we still know that women are the ones thinking have we got enough nappies? What time does nursery finish? Who's picking up from there? We're running that in our head 24 hours a day. Um, and I think that pressure on women became too much in the pandemic and many women stepped out and stepped back in their careers. Yes. And I think what's interesting we're now seeing in our workshops is they're now coming back, some of them, um, or they've carried on in some way and they are absolutely exhausted. Mm. And, you know, and I think lots of people are, you know, we know that there's been some really fantastic benefits and people have worked in a much more innovative way. And there's loads of good things. But the overall feeling is, you know, there's there's a lot of feeling of guilt. There's a lot of feeling of over, being overwhelmed. And there's just some feelings of being exhausted mm. and, and also reappraising, you know, what kind of life's about and what your values are. Um, so I do think that there's a real kind of change there. Um what do you think we can do to really attract and help women back in the workplace again now? I think we have a divine opportunity now. And in a way, it's been a silver lining of the pandemic is that pre-pandemic, I've dealt with multiple cases in the past of women who have 
come back from maternity leave or asked for flexible working. And the line manager or the company have said, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And given reasons why that wasn't possible. And those reasons would never stand up post the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> so that's been a real gem of the pandemic because this flexibility and fluidity about how we work is being proven can be much more flexible and fluid. And I think companies can really keep that in mind and think about that when they are supporting women in the workplace, supporting their employees. It's not just women. You know, we can look at flexible working, which used to be seen as a woman's thing, um, which I hate, but it did. Yeah. Saying, yeah, come on. What about the dad who's going to leave at 4 p.m. on Wednesday and pick up the kid from school? And if we can all look at how we can be flexible in the workplace, we can support the individual needs of each person. Yeah. And a word that you might have heard more of in the diversity space is this concept um, of individualization, which is saying, we don't want to collectively lump people into groups and say, well, they're the parents or those are the women of color. It's not always a, a probe trying to fit people into a box, but actually what do people need individually to have themselves feel included, valued, to really drive a diverse workforce? And this concept of individualization for me is incredibly powerful. Because if companies can be looking at each person and thinking, how can we help this person be able to deliver exactly what they need for this business, that person is going to be 10 times more productive if the company can think about what that person needs as an individual rather than putting them into a bucket that says parent or whatever it might be. Um, Because everybody's circumstances are different. You might have employees who are carers with an aged relative or you know, a family with a disabled child that needs taking to the hospital. There are so many different reasons why we as companies must look at people as individuals and help think about how we can help them to do the best job they can do for the company. Yeah, and I agree. And you know what? I don't think it should be that hard because we spent years going, look, let's look at our customers. Let's segment them. Let's try and do personalization. So it's not a massive leap to say, okay, let's try and be individualistic um, about those people that we work for, that work for us, because they're, of course, you know, one of the most important things we've got. If you haven't got your your good um, people, then what if you've got nothing? Mm, that's uh, true. I love that, actually. Personalization for your employees, as you would for a product or a business. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I love that. You know, when we, and we have that skill set, and then people go, oh, no, it's really hard. We can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> if we can do it for customers, we can do it for employees. Yeah, exactly. Employees are kind of like your customer in the workplace, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, and absolutely, I think those companies that get it right feel, you know, it is as equally important as customers, if mm. not more so. Because frankly, mm. if you haven't got any good employees that are engaged, you're not going to have any customers, are you? I agree. I think companies who stick with rigidity, are going to struggle to attract the best talent. Yes, yes. And that is what I'm seeing a lot. You know, those ones that are really innovative and um, and thinking about it. And I don't know about you, but I find, it's, this has happened to me every time I've started a business, I always think it's going to be the companies that need you most that start work with you. And it never is. It's always the companies that get it. And then they go, or that they understand they need a big shift. So, you know, of course, it's probably not surprising that we work with Google and Pinterest and Oracle and some of these really 
you know, big companies that are very focused on performance and well-being and how that kind of drives and DNI. Um, and then companies like TUI that say, do you know what? We've got to rebuild. And so making well-being a strategic priority alongside how do we really help our people so critical. And then other companies I look at and just think, you really need some help. You could really make a difference. And they're just struggling along on their own going, oh, no, we're fine. <laughs> yeah, I, that resonates. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, look, um, the, you know, this podcast is called Reset. And I guess um, I'm really interested in why you set up Womo, what it is. And, and was that a moment of reset for you? That's a great question, too. You've got some killer questions for me today. <laughs> oh, good. Good. I um. Why did I set up Womo? So I have three children. They are 19, 17 and six. And I have always worked full time and having a career and having that for me was always really important to me. I love being a mum, but I really wanted to have a career and I love what I do and I love working and I don't have any problem saying that and I don't feel any guilt about it. What I have guilt about is being able to juggle both. And that's run through my whole career. You know, I've missed school plays. I've missed parents' evening. I'm never at the school gates. Um, a bit better now with my youngest. Um, and I've had jobs where I travel a lot and I'm away and out of the country and leaving the kids behind. And it's been a, I mean, I know the, you know, we say the juggle is real. It really is. It really is. And I think that, having a job and having kids and trying to juggle it is a very unique set of challenges that I can't compare to anything else. So seven years ago, I set up Womo Network, the website on the side of my day job at Tapestry. Mm. And it was really a passion project. Um, it wasn't, I didn't make money out of it. I just wanted a resource or a place that working mums could go and Womo was born. And then my brain ticked along I had my third child and during that time kept thinking here I am sitting in HR and what tools do we have to make maternity better because typically the woman says she's pregnant goes to HR she receives a letter confirming her pay you know she's told that they're you know she's given congratulations and it's all lovely mm -hmm. but then she just ticks along being pregnant at work going on maternity leave coming back to work. And during that time, I've seen women feel incredibly disconnected, really lost. Their whole sense of who they are is thrown up in the air when that first baby arrives. Um, you know, we've both been there, we get it. Mm -hmm. And actually, how do we make that experience better so we're not losing women in the workplace? And then when I started researching and digging into this with my other HR contacts and run some focus groups, we realized how big the problem really is. And actually everybody I speak to, if it's not them, it's a friend they know has had a bad experience. And all of this was culminating into, we have to do maternity better. This is just terrible. Um, so I decided to step out of corporate life. Um, I came out of corporate life in April 20, 2020, hilariously now in retrospect, mm -hmm. um, yes. into lockdown one. Um, <laughs> And I uh, built, started building Womo, the tech platform, as a resource for HR teams. And we went live after beta testing and thrashing out the tech in July of 21. Um, and then the idea just grew in that time. And it started off as a let's support with maternity. And our mission of the business now is 
women are underrepresented in the workplace. We know that if women were employed at the same rate, it would add billions to the economy. So how do we support women at work? So we've grown into a much bigger uh, strategy. We launched our menopause module in Q3 of this year, and we're doing fertility and paternity in 2023. So it's a much more collective overarching vision of how can we put this support into companies to help not only women, but to educate line managers, HR departments, anyone in that business to help understand how to support a woman going through maternity. So helping line managers have the right conversations. And then when we launch things like our menopause module, maybe you're a man at work whose partner's going through that at home. She's not employed by the business, but you want to understand how you can do better because then the vision is really touching anybody who is involved with being part of supporting women through all these key moments in life. Um, so we're super excited. It's growing. Um, we're in our second investment raise at the minute. And for me, this is coming from a deep passion, the deep of my heart of I've done nearly 20 years. You know, my eldest is 19 of working and doing this. And I know that if I had this support and resource, it would have made a difference to me. And that drives me every day to think we can do better and support women at work. So interesting, isn't it? I, I had a really aha moment when I sold my business voice to catchers to Centaur um, to sort of about five, six years ago. Um, I was doing a International Women's Day internal conversation with somebody from Centaur, a couple of clients, an agency head and me. And there was at the end of our session, one of the young women from the floor said, you know, you've talked about all the amazing things you've done. It's really, really fantastic. But what have you given up? You must have given up a lot. And all the women went, well, of course, you know, I've not been to sports days. I've not been to the gay, da, 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 da. And I thought, gosh, that's so interesting. Now, I've run my own businesses for the last 20 years. And I did that because I was in advertising before and nobody worked at a senior level part time. You know, nobody really could, you know, I couldn't do the traveling thing. And I really, really wanted to be with my kids, but I wanted to work. And then, and then I got divorced. So, you know, again, that was for me a moment of, I either go back into a more corporate kind of world or I start again and set up another new business. But what was so interesting to me as I went, oh, well, actually, I've never missed a sports day. I have been to the gate. No, I don't go every day. And if you obviously, if you spoke to Jazz and Sam, they'd be, yeah, right, mum, we'd love you to be around a bit more. But there were lots of things I did do. But that's because I ran my own business. And I think there's some real learnings. But then, you know, I had a kind of massive chip on my shoulder because I wasn't a proper corporate person. You know, so I desperately, part of the reason saying my business, I think, was oh, I'll be corporate and it'll be really important and I'll be just like, you know, I won't have this imposter syndrome anymore. And it's so rubbish because I then sell the business. I'm in a corporate environment and I have just as much imposter syndrome as I did before. But if I talked to more women about it, God, it would have been so much better. I know. And this is the thing. We have um, a feature in our product called Find Womos Near Me, which women can opt in or out of. And they can connect um, through by geography, which I know there are lots of mum platforms out there. But for us, it's collectively saying these are Womos that you know, are trying to focus on that career and the motherhood. And it's just another way in which women can meet each other. But we also do it by company and by business sector. Um, and that's another way you can filter Womos. And for me, that's really powerful because being able to connect in with other women that do it so you don't feel so alone with it, I think it's really important. Yeah. Um, 
it's I mean it's so difficult and everybody's story is different there isn't a one size fits all and I think that having that flexibility you had when you were running your own business and I have that now and I've never had that in the last two years it's the first time I've ever had this and I I do take my son to school every day um they can be dropped between eight and eight thirty, and I am there at seven fifty nine. But, <laughs> but, but, I'm you know, done. but it's interesting, isn't it? Because you can run a business. Yeah. When we went into lockdown, everyone's like, "God, how do we get people to work from home?" And I'm like, "Oh, well, I know, because I built a whole business for people working, yeah. as well as being in the office." So, you know, but then there's lots of things that we didn't do. So I think there's a real learning, you know, and we, and we do it naturally in business, don't we? We kind of have mentors, we do mm-hmm. the whole learning thing. You know, I belong to Wackle, which is a women in advertising club, and it's awesome. And actually, that is a group of women who've been hugely supportive and helped on training. You know, we're very obsessed by training in the industry. Mm-hmm. It's been probably the single biggest important factor of my, of my working career, certainly in the last 15 years. Mm. You know, that group of women and even now that you know my kids don't live at home anymore um it doesn't mean because they don't live at home doesn't mean that I suddenly go oh it's great I don't need to worry about that stuff anymore because actually when they come back to me with a problem it's a massive problem it's not just like oh I forgot my PE kit today I know it's so true my eldest is away in her gap here she's um in Costa Rica at the minute actually and I get these calls from Costa Rica where she you know is upset about something or there's been a crisis offloads phone down yeah and then I'm like I'm now left with that (laughs) I know know. and they walk off going thanks for my daughter and she's a psychologist so she should know better I think that's why she does it offload and then she's like out partying and I'm going oh my gosh exactly I spent half the night sleepless worrying about it and then I see on Instagram the next day she'd be at some fun party having the best time and I think oh thanks for that um, yes, exactly. So I hear how, does, how does the Elizabeth? How does the app work for HR functions? What do they actually? How do they use it? What happens? So at, when the woman goes to HR and says she's pregnant, uh, they subscribe her onto the platform. So once we've set up the client account or the the business is registered on the platform, which takes about five minutes, they can then add a user. And so let's say you know Elizabeth comes to me, so I'd add Elizabeth onto the platform and send her an invite to the platform, which takes 30 seconds. It's first name, surname, and personal email. And we use personal email because we want them off their work email on maternity leave. So it's deliberate. She then creates her profile in the system, which once completed, populates a kind of employee card, uh, you know, in the tech. And then HR will receive an email saying, Elizabeth has now completed her profile and the employee card will appear in the back end of the system for HR. So HR can see all the information and they receive an email to say it's been done. Um, And they can export those employee cards into Excel or into any other HR database they've got. And then some of the questions we ask when the uh, expecting parent completes the profile are things like, how long you want to maternity leave? How many kit days do you want to use? How frequently would you like to be contacted? And this is a really critical question because when we did our focus groups, I had two HR people say to me way back in the beginning, but can we contact somebody on maternity leave? And I thought, if HR don't know you can do that, we've really got a problem. So if we ask this super overt question at the point at which the woman creates her profile, then we've got the information. So let's say that Elizabeth says, I want to be contacted monthly. We now know that information in the system. 
And there's a few other questions we ask about um, their profile and we set it up. But the contact thing is really important. So let's say I say I want to be contacted monthly. A month after my maternity leave, you would receive an email saying, Dear Suki, Elizabeth has been on maternity leave for a month. She'd like to be contacted monthly. Please update her on changes in the team, any new projects that are going on. And we give a handful of prompts of the types of things that are useful and helpful to send to that woman. Um, and we do that for two reasons. Firstly, because we know that sometimes line managers say silly things that get us into litigation cases, and we're trying to minimize that by handholding them. And secondly, this is what the woman's asked for. She wants to be engaged and valued. So we're telling the line manager to do it so he, he or she doesn't forget about this person who's on maternity leave because frequently it's out of sight, out of mind, and that person yeah. is forgotten. Um, and the, by the way, the mother can turn that on and off on her profile at any time. So right. if she thinks, I don't want any contact now, no, thank you, you can switch that off. But we send those alerts. Um, and then inside the platform, from our expert partners, it is full of a wealth of expert advice, content support, from practical tips like a printable list of what to buy for my first baby. So you can just right. shop with your printed <laughs> list, all the things you need. As we know, the smallest person in the house needs the most things. Um, advice on things like breastfeeding versus bottle feeding. Um, we've partnered with Bliss, the neonatal charity, in case the baby comes very early, some support on that. Um, we've partnered with Zeta West is one of our partners. I don't know if you know Zeta West. She's mm -hmm. an amazing acupuncturist, nutritionist, and she's written all of our nutrition content. So the right thing to be eating at each stage. So we've brought expert partners on board that have written curated content for our users in the platform. And these people are experts. They know what they're doing. Um, and that advice is there for them to read, consume, take the bits they want or they don't want. There's a search feature. So you can search up for what you want in the platform. We cover things like choosing the right childcare. There's a nanny interview sheet and a questions to ask a nursery sheet. Um, and then when you're back at work, that section covers things like um, imposter syndrome, guilt, what to do when your child's ill. So it's literally mm -hmm. the whole mm -hmm. journey in these four different sections in the platform with support and guidance and help mm -hmm. for that whole journey uh, as, the, as the woman That's goes through cool. it. How interesting. And do you think, because I think the other thing that I notice, and I think it's, a, I've talked to our psychologist about it, I think it's a kind of psychological challenge that often women have anyway, because we're naturally copers, that actually, if you can help people reach out from a moment of, of reset in their life and having a baby's massive for that, um, you can then get to a place where people reach out before they get to a crisis. Mm -hmm. absolutely and, and I wonder you know from listening to this I just like you know that that's so helpful because what we find you know particularly when we're looking at you know things that are impacting people's performance they let it get you know we know mental health or, mm -hmm. or any of these things they get to a crisis moment before they put their hand up mm -hmm. and then they wait even longer whereas actually we don't want people to do that we want them to say do you know what I've had a baby and I want to be contacted or I don't or I'd like some help or actually I'm fine but I'd like someone to chat to you so I think there's loads of things that would be just so that will work more effectively and enable people to be the best mum either the best partner the best employee if they can get this kind of you know way of working yeah no absolutely and it all supports into well-being in the workplace and you know I think 
a key thing on this, and there's quite a lot of well-being content in our platform, is about saying, as a company, you are offering to your employee well-being solutions and things to help them look after themselves, which as an employer is showing that you are committed to engaging that talent. You know, this, this person is important to you and you value them. Um, and just being going back to your point about we know that people sometimes come too late to raise their hand and ask for help. One of the things that's important and my last role back at Tapestry, I headed up well-being. And, you know, when we ran some of the well-being events, you know, we did an art workshop once. And I know that might sound like a nonsense, but the two, two, a couple of things that were good about that and why we did it. It get well, more than two things. It gets people away from their desk. So it gives them a break from the work. It's creative. So it's using a different part of your brain. But one of the biggies of some of the well-being initiatives that we did and that companies do is to have people sit and talk and just talk about what they're doing and talk about something other than work. And if you're sitting there and painting, you'll be having a laugh about that and having a joke. And I've never painted before and I'm rubbish at this. And but we know that that kind of authentic conversation allows people to sit in their authentic self and be who they really are. And if you can create space for that as part of your well-being strategy, you really are supporting your diversity and inclusion agenda of saying, whoever you are, we want you to be part of this business and we want to show your true authentic self and truly be who you want to be in this organization. And there are some brilliant well-being initiatives that can support that. And I think that some of that we've put through our WOMO platform, albeit a tech solution, mm. but being able to have people reflect on what's important to them and who they are is all part of the engagement process. Yes. And, and also they learn something, don't they? You know, so we have the seven needs of wellbeing and performance. That's a test that sits um, underneath most of the work we do. And one, ele- one you know, the fourth uh, part is creativity. And we know people learning new things uh, is so important. And I, you know, and I think so often we still do the, okay, at home, you would do an art thing, but you wouldn't do it at work. Well, kind of why not? You know, at our Power Up Festival in May, we've got a choir going to sing and we've got a guy who's going to do a sing-along. That's and brilliant. He does, and he does them in businesses. And we just thought, you know, before some of the sessions, he's going to do a quick song for everyone to sing. And, you know, there's part of me that goes, oh, my God. It's going to be brilliant. But it is so cool. And, you know, those sort of things often have. Uh, you know, we did a choir at Central for Christmas and actually, it got me to meet more people across the business than almost anything else we've done. Because we sang in a choir and we rehearsed two or three times a week for a few weeks before Christmas. It was brilliant. I think that's brilliant. Also, people quite often start with those kinds of things with this mentality of, I can't do this. It's going to be awful. It's going to be awkward. I'm going to hate it. And then when they do it, they reflect back afterwards and it totally boosts that endorphin energy of like, I did it and it was great. And it's a real feel good thing. It really yeah, is. It is. It is. It is. What else at Tapestry? So, you know, you have that HR role, but also this well-being one. And I guess, you know, it was before the pandemic. That's quite an innovative thing for a business like that to have. I mean, there are increasingly now more heads of well-being. Um, what did you particularly focus on in, in that role? Um, I saw we started in Europe and then expanded out into a more global role, but we focused on a handful of different things. They were bucketed, actually, to test my memory now. Uh, We had one around fitness, one about mental health. We had financial well-being, um, 
we had one around connection. I can't remember what the headings were, but they were different themes. And we had quarterly themes where we would run particular events at least one a week, sometimes two, one or two a week. Mm. Um, and I hands up to anyone who's been managing well-being through the pandemic because we did in-person events where we could. And I think that is so powerful. Um, and I know a lot of it moved online in the pandemic, but people did get sick of Zoom and different events online. Um, so we do these in-person events. Some of them are recorded because then we were able to get them. So it's a retail company. So we wanted to be able to include the stores where you can't take everybody off the shop floor at the same time. Um, and we did anything from um, yoga to creative events to um, we had a we had a kombucha workshop once. I remember that one. Um, we had different fitness things going on, um, but we had something going at least once a week. And wow, we started off with, um, you know, we started off small and then managed the uh, attendee level as one of our measures of success. So we started in the beginning, you look back when we began, it was really small and then started encouraging people to bring a friend. So bring somebody off your desk, you know, bring somebody with you. And some of it, we had to go to line managers and get them to yeah. tell their teams to go. Say, I'll give you full permission, get off the desk for 45 minutes, go and do whatever it might be. So you do need requirement and commitment from the top and from the leadership for really to get a good well-being strategy off the ground. Um, and then measures of success. You've got to be able to measure it and prove its success. And that's how we then expanded out into other geographies by proving the success in Europe and showing how it had made a difference to um, our employee engagement survey, our employee turnover, um, our sickness stats. And of course, you can't say X equals Y, but if all these things come together and you can bring the stats together, you can start seeing indicators and behaviors and trends and different things that are impacting um, the engagement of your teams. And it, it was amazing. I loved it. I loved that part mm -hmm. of my role. I loved it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I think you're right. You know, the senior engagement when we were doing some work with McDonald's, um, I remember it really well. The first time we did a big workshop with them, it was on the day when they had some people standing on the roofs of one of their McDonald's in protest. But Paul Pomeroy, who was the chief exec, said, no, 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 I am about to go to a meeting, so I can't stay for the whole thing, but I am going to do the intro. I'm going to be there for the first part. And he half the exco and said, right, half the exco is going to go to the meeting and the other half is staying for this because it's so important to our business. And, you know, when you set that kind of tone and behavior from the top, it, it, it is the only way that you make those changes and that people see that it's really important and it's just as important as, you know, meeting your other KPIs or getting mm. in or, you know, speaking. It's to really important. I remember a senior leader saying, um, they'd been out of the business for a week and they were unwell. And that's all I knew is they were unwell. And when they came back in, I caught up with this particular man and said, are you all right? You know, you've not been very well. And he said, actually, this, that and the other happened and described uh, something that happened that was related to his mental health. And I said, I'm so sorry you didn't say. And he said, I didn't feel that I could and I don't want to tell anybody. And I said, I invite you to tell the team. And the reason why I invite you to tell the team is because if you are able to be that open and transparent, you will get that back from them. And he did. And I was so blown away by him telling that story to his team. But there was a, honestly, the change in his team was extraordinary, just in terms of their empathy, their support of him, their commitment to him, and then their ability to be totally open and transparent 
about what was really going on in their lives. So where you can get a senior person to share their own stories, however big or small, it is super powerful with well-being and authenticity in the workplace. It is. And it's so funny, isn't it? Because when they do it, it makes such a difference, but it's so hard. It's so hard, Mm. particularly, I think, as leaders, we've spent so many years being told that's not what you do, Mm. is a weakness. And, you know, it's it's understandable that we don't like to speak out about things that, you know, feel very personal to us. But you're Mm. right, it does. It makes such a difference. The problem with it, though, is I believe strongly is culture. And being able to create a culture of inclusion where anything goes. And if you have a company where culturally it's unacceptable to discuss your children or your home life or, you know, if you're expected to come in and put a work hat on and do your job and then go home, you're creating a culture that's very oppressive and very difficult. And yet, you know, we are humans. You know, we are real. We go through breakups, you know, divorces and emotional breakdowns and we have accidents and break our leg and you know a child is off sick and this is real life Mm -hmm. and the point at which we can embrace real life we're driving a true culture of inclusion um I've certainly had a job many years ago um and you know I've been in that situation where I felt like I had to go to work and put my work hat on and it's super uncomfortable it's horrible yeah yeah, well, you know, covering, we know there's loads of psychological reports that show how difficult it is. Mm. Um, you know, and I did a podcast a few weeks ago with Zaid Alkasab, who's the head of, you probably know him, head of DNI and marketing at Channel 4. And, and you know, I've known him for a long time. I know that he's suffered from um, depression and anxiety for over 10 years. And we've talked about it regularly. And he never felt able to openly talk about it until this time at Channel 4. And, you know, his chief exec was very open about it. And, you know, and I think even when we did the podcast and it was really his first time of talking openly about it in a working environment, um, he was brilliant. But he just said, oh, you know, I feel quite awkward. I haven't used these words before. And nobody would go, oh, Zaid, well, you know, that clearly has made you not as good as you would have been before. He's an extraordinary marketeer and leader. Um, And actually, I think most people now feel even better about him because of what he did. But, you know, it's interesting that even somebody like him, who from the outside you think would be super confident in his own ability, didn't feel able to have that conversation. Mm. And that's really powerful for him to speak out like that. Really powerful. Um, Mm. We are, we're human. Yeah, Yeah, I know. So I'm, I'm interested in, again, this sort of reset you said a couple of years ago, as we went into the pandemic, you, you, um took on this job sort of full-time being an entrepreneur um how's it felt for you oh my gosh I mean talk about (laughs) talk about emotions leading on from our previous discussion I mean I have a hundred percent had days where I've got up and thought what have I done I cannot do this I've had nights where I've cried into my pillow in all vulnerability of like this is too hard um I think having all the kids at home and one in A-levels and one in GCSEs and one in reception at that point, was it was just horrific. I, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. It was horrific. Um, and I solo parent. Um, so, you know, it was intense in this house. <laughs> um, and I've had moments of like, this is a disaster. And then I have days when I get up and I am 
I remember why I did it. And the why behind it all is everything to me. And even the days when it's dark and I think, oh my gosh, you know, this is so hard. I remember why I'm doing it. And I really care. This is a passion project, a purpose project. Mm -hmm. There's a big why behind it. It is really needed. Um, And I don't think I'm selling myself my own, you know, rubbish, but it is really needed. We need this. And when I talk to companies, they want it. So that keeps me going and keeps me pushing on. And, um, but it's been a real shock to my system. Probably the biggest shock to my system, actually, even though I knew this was going to happen, is that in corporate life, you could have a slightly off month, you know, mm-hmm. and be like, well, I'm knackered this month or I've been traveling and I might not have been on, on point in that meeting or I might not have been perfect, but I still got paid. I know, coast long, can't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, exactly. And I think, you know, and I worked very hard at Tapestry and I used to put the hours in like no tomorrow. And yet I'm still putting the hours in, if not more, and I don't get paid at the end of the month. Um, and I think that's um that's been a real wake-up call, is that grit of there is no off day as an entrepreneur. You cannot afford an off day. And I think that's taken me a really long time to get my head around and not beat myself up for it, actually. Because if I had a bad meeting in corporate, I'd feel a bit guilty, but you'd get up the next day. Now, if I have a bad meeting, I could beat myself up for three days and think, but this is my company and it's going to be right. It's very personal, doesn't it? Yes, it's so yeah. much more personal because I want to show up well, always in what we deliver. And so I think that's been a really big learning, actually. And do you also find, because I think the other thing I've found, particularly in this space, and I don't know if it's the same with you, is that people go, oh, so nice that you've done this. You know, it's lovely that you've kind of given something back. And, you, and, you know, and I, my answer is, you know, yes, I do. This is for me. This is the best job I've ever done. And I feel like my whole career has been around helping people with performance and linking it to well-being and energy. But it's not just a little bit of fun. It's mm. not just a, a passion project. It's a commercial business. Yes. Like your people are a commercial asset to you and they are the route to your success. And I find it actually quite offensive when people put their head on one side and say oh it's so nice of you you know thanks I hear you oh I'm gonna I'm gonna have a mini rant now I'm gonna have a yeah can I have a little rant yes do um as you probably know uh I learned recently uh I ranted about it all over social media I think at the time that in 2021 one percent of VC funding went to female founders and in 2020 it was 2.4 percent so it less I mean it went below half to one percent in 2021 and when I learned this I was furious literally furious I was outraged because as you say this isn't just a little passion project this is my business and I'm out there raising money and I feel really frustrated and um, irritated by the idea that it could be just a little idea that I had no yes I'm a woman and yes I've got a bloody good business idea and yes when I speak to an investor that is excited about it it literally fires me up inside like there's no other and yet I also have had meetings and I won't name any names where I get that look of so you're helping women that are having babies in this way of like really I felt feel really undermined when I get and we can't see the face on a podcast but just that slightly head on one side oh well done no, this is a commercial business, as you say, and we are here to do good 
And yes, it's going to cost a company money to buy it in. But there's a reason for that. Because if you pay for Womo and save one woman from leaving that year, it's paid for itself 10 times over. This is a commercial business. And I think that fighting as a woman for a business, which is about women, really fires me up and gets me a little bit ranty. You know, I absolutely agree. And um, we just we just really kindly, nicely, I suppose, got shortlisted on the Startup Awards. Oh, amazing. Last, yeah, last week or week before. And actually, you know, I'm not a big person who puts anything in for award ever, other than this time, because I just thought, you know what? I think it's so important that we shout about women entrepreneurs. I mean, for me, this is the fourth business and, and I, you know, I'm much older. Although for me, my rant is just because you get to 50 doesn't mean you can't start another business. You know, of course. End of your career. You can keep going. You don't have to be 25 to start a new business. And, you know, and they had two and a half thousand entries. And, and I thought, you know, good on them. And, you know, I haven't seen all the shortlists, but it looks like a good cross-section between female and male entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, if there are two and a half thousand businesses that have started up within the last three years that are going to be highlighted in some way that you've got their, the shortlist down there, that is really good. And, and to mm. your point, it, it, it is a serious thing. You know, my, my standard joke for years, and I hope it never happens to you, uh, which used to happen to me all the time and never happened to my previous business partner, Peter Cowie, was uh, I'd sit around dinner parties and they'd say, oh, you know, what do you do? Just go, oh, I run my own business. Oh, do you work from home? No, I have an office. They go, oh, really? Yes, I have an office in then London, Hong Kong, New York. Think, oh, you hire lots of people. I explain what I did. And then they'd say, oh, um, so do you have a business partner? And I'd say, yeah, Peter Cowie is great. Um, now, bearing in mind, I did this business before I met Peter, and then I set another one up, and then he joined me. And, and they're like, oh, good, there's a man. That's fine. It's absolutely fine. And you and you just, and literally, I used to say this to uh, to Peter and then and my previous partner, and they'd laugh going, no, that can't be true. And then one day we were at a dinner, and the guy next to me, he wasn't even next to me, he shouted over the table at it. He did exactly that conversation. They just went, we cannot believe that just happened. But it happened to me all the time. I've never known a man, never had a man go, oh, yes, I've had the same conversation when mm. somebody thinks I work from home with, you know, two people when I was running a multi-million multinational company. I know, it's true. And I, I mean, I get asked, how did you do that with the kids? No man would ever get asked that question no. in a million years. No. And I find it incredibly frustrating. Um, actually, if it's a man asking the question, I say, how do you do it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then actually you go, how do you do with your kids? And then are you are you on your own? Do yeah. You, do you still parent? Oh, really? Gosh, well, you know, that's more complicated. Try that one out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but I think it's calling out those biases. And oh my God, there are so many, un well, I was going to say unconscious biases. Some of them are very conscious. But calling out those biases, and you can do it politely and gently, but just raising them to awareness, um, I think is important for all of us to catch ourselves and others when we do that yeah yeah I agree I completely agree and if your kids described you now as you know seeing you as mom and the entrepreneur that you are how would they describe you would they describe you any differently from before um that's a really timely question because just before you and I jumped on this podcast I had an investor call and my 17 year old was sat on the sofa and I was sitting downstairs and I said shh 
I've got a Zoom with an investor. So she's like, do I, can I sit here? I said, of course you can, but just don't start taking phone calls or making TikToks. Um, so I'm on the phone with this, on the Zoom with this investor. And I put the phone down and she's like, mommy, that was really good. And it was really funny because I don't think she's heard me pitch my business before. And it was really interesting to hear her because it's Easter holiday. She's, you know, yeah. she's around and about more hearing me do my work. Um, and it was funny. I think um, they're really proud of me, actually. They are. And I asked them actually, a few months ago. I forgot about this, actually. This is a good thing to tell for anyone who's got much younger children who's working. I said to them, I have worked your whole life since you were teeny. Now you're 17 and 19. What do you think about that? Like, how's it been having a mum that works the whole time? Because there was times I felt so guilty for not being at the school play. And they're like, we don't care. It's fine. And I said, well, didn't you feel like you missed out without me being there? And they said, no. Oh, because I always had a promise. I should add this in that somebody was always there. So if it wasn't me, it was their father. And if it wasn't their father, it was my mother. And if it wasn't my mother, it was the nanny. And if it wasn't the nanny or, you know, an au pair, it was another parent that I made clear was there to watch on behalf of me. So I'd say, you know, Joe's mom is here and she's going to tell me everything that happened. So I made sure they knew somebody was there to support them. And weirdly, they remembered that. And they said, but there was always somebody there for us. And that tiny thing that I thought was me being like, oh my God, it's like the au pair and she sat at the back and there's no parents there. They felt like somebody was there. So I just say that now because I think any mums with younger children who are feeling terrible for missing the school play have someone that's there on your behalf and they do feel that it's been remembered and noticed and what they're doing is important. But back to your original question, um, what do they think? They love it. I think they quite like it now that they can tell their friends that this is what I do. And they really cheer me on. And my older two girls, so I have two teenage daughters and then a son who's six. And I hope I've raised them as girls, as women, to be empowered to do what they want and go after it in life and have a have a career or a passion or a you know an idea as an entrepreneur to do whatever they want to do in life. And I feel like when they talk to me now about what they do, I've instilled that possibility upon them. And I'm proud of that as a mother. I'm, I'm not surprised. That's so interesting, isn't it? My, I've just come from a, a goodbye lunch to the guy Jasper who worked with us at Oyster Catchers for like six years. Um, and he was saying, isn't it great that, I mean, all my, everyone who's worked with me know both my children. And he said, isn't it great that Sam and Jazz do something they both care passionately about? And they've actually both worked at Letters Research during COVID at different times. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, actually, that's amazing. That's kind of what I wanted for them. Mm. So, um, yeah, I can get that. I absolutely can get that. Well, look, it's been, it's been so lovely to talk to you. I'm super proud of you. I think, you know, we don't know each other very well, but I think what you've done for women by raising it, helping, but also just looking at it from a commercial point of view and recognising that it's so important that we take these things seriously. Um, and I think that women like you that have come from a commercial environment, that have come from businesses where, you know, you have properly made a difference and now you are turning your passion project into, a, you know, a really good, amazing business that's going to impact the lives of, you know, millions of women, let's hope. Um, Thank you. Oh, it's so nice talking to you. I have loved this, Suki. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you very much. I'll see you soon. Thank you. See you soon.
thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network. Music